We good? Yes. I'm going to step out of the way so everyone can see this. This picture. How many of you know who this is? My family didn't get to be included. And a few others in here that I know. Some of you may know, many of you don't evidently, the name of Eric Little. Uh, some of you may have heard of him uh, recently. Some of you also may, uh, although I was thinking about this the other day as, I, as this kind of came into my mind and this developed in my head uh, to, to open up with this. Um, some of you may have seen in, uh, on DVD or something that I don't think it's been, I know it hasn't been in the movies because it, it, uh, the, the movie Chariots of Fire. How many of you have seen Chariots of Fire? There's a few more hands, okay? Uh, Chariots of Fire was, was the Academy Award-winning movie of 1981. Many of you weren't even alive in 1981. But uh, in, in that year, it won, it, it, and it was a story of, uh, of a group of, of, of English athletes, European or English athletes, in the 1924 Olympics. Eric Little was one of these men. He was born Eric Henry Little, January 16th, 1902. To Reverend and Mrs. James Dunlock Little, Scottish missionaries of the London Missionary Society, who served in the Tianjin province of northern China. Eric lived in China until he was six years of age when he was then enrolled in a, in, in a place called Eltham College in South London, which was a boarding school for the sons of missionaries. As a student of pure science, after he had graduated from Eltham, he went to the University of Edinburgh. And athletics and rugby played a large part in Eric's university life. So for those of you who don't know what rugby is, uh, let me see. Soccer is, a, is a, I believe, been described as a sport, played, a sport for gentlemen played by animals. And rugby is a sport for animals played by gentlemen. Uh, it's, it, is, it is in Scotland and in lots of Ireland what football, American football is to us. Uh, it is, it's that important to them. Uh, he was he was very very uh, 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 active in in other athletics and, and a star rugby player. He also uh, ran he ran the hundred yards race and the two hundred twenty yards race for Edinburgh University, and he later played for the Scottish National Rugby Union team. Uh, early in nineteen twenty four, he won the Scottish Amateur Athletics Association championship in the hundred yard dash or the hundred yard race. As, and set a British record of 9.7 seconds, a record that would not be broken for 35 years. During the summer of 1924, the Olympics were hosted by the city of Paris. And Little was a committed Christian, and he refused to run on Sunday with the consequence that he was forced to withdraw from the 100-meter race, his best event, because the qualifying heats were to be held on Sunday, and he refused to run. Not wanting to miss out on having the, the man known as the Flying Scotsman compete for the European team, Eric was switched to the list to run a 400 meters race, a race that he had not been training for very much, but one that he had run in the past. On the day of the race, as Little went to the starting blocks, a man slipped a piece of paper in his hand. That paper contained a quote from 1 Samuel 2.30. And it said, those who honor me, I will honor. Little took the starting blocks with that piece of paper in his hand. And running that race, he set a new world record uh, of 47.6 seconds. But that was not the most important race of Eric Little's life. A year later... In 1925, having been hosted, toasted, uh, 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 given more accolades in, in the, in the, uh, and become a, a, a Scottish and European hero for winning the Olympics, one year later, Eric returned to northern China. In northern China, he served um, as a missionary until his death from a brain tumor on February 21st of 1945. During that period, it was the time of World War II, and Japan occupied most of northern China by the summer of 1941. 
1943, Eric and those who worked with him at the Shangchong Mission Station were moved to the Waisin Internment Camp. Now, some of you may have heard some of this. Waisin, the Waisin Internment Camp was 30 miles south of Beijing, okay, where they held the Olympics this year. Um, Little became the leader of that camp and helped organize it for, because it was basically filled with missionaries and missionaries' children. In, in a book, uh, one of Little's fellow internees wrote, later wrote a book, and in that book, he wrote uh, of, of Little, quote, he was the finest Christian gentleman it has been my pleasure to meet. In all the time in the camp, I never heard him say a bad word about anyone. Late in Little's internment, Winston Churchill approved a prisoner exchange, and Little, as a famous athlete, was one of the prisoners chosen to go. However, he gave his place to a pregnant woman. Fifty-six years after the 1924 Paris Olympics, a Scotsman named Alan Wells won the 100-meter dash at the 1980 Moscow Olympics. After his victory, when he, would at, when he was asked if he had run this race for a gentleman named Harold Abrams, who was the last European 100-yard dash winner, which was also in 1924, he, was a, he, was, he would have competed against Eric Little in that, in that race. Wells replied, no, this one was for Eric Little. Recently, some of you know, most of you know this name, Mary Carrillo, a sports writer, now a sports writer, commentator, uh, once Olympic athlete, uh, great tennis, female tennis player. She hosted the Olympic late night program of this past Olympics. And in conclusion of a piece on Eric Little, she said, this is a quote, in these Olympics, we've met so many competitors who want to do great and be great. Here was a man who wanted to do good and be good. What we talked about last week was the hope that grace conveys. What we're going to talk about this week is the transformation that grace creates. Look with me in the book of Titus, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 15 of Titus chapter 2. And it begins, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority, and do not let anyone despise you. In these first five verses, first five words of verse 14, that's going to be our focus, who gave himself for us is bound up the center of Christianity. The significance of verse 11 for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, is culminated in verse 14, who gave himself for us. As we know, in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, and you can turn over there if you'd like to, I'm going to just, Matthew chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 24, it says, when the ten heard about this, let me just put this in context really quickly. A couple of guys, uh, um, mother has come and, said to Jesus, I want one of my sons, one, the, the, the couple of the disciples, okay, their mother went to Jesus and said, I want my sons, one to sit on your left side and one to sit on your right side when you take your place in glory, when you glorify yourself. And Jesus replying says, you don't know what you're asking. Can they go through the things that I'm about to go through? And uh, uh, not able to respond to that, uh, Jesus then says, it were recorded in, in, starting in verse 24 when the 10 heard about this that's heard about the request that had been made by this mother of Jesus they were indignant with the two brothers and Jesus called them together and said you know 
that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become, to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must, must be your slave. Here's the key verse. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We're at the heart of Christianity with these first five verses who gave himself for us. And this is what marks out Christianity from anything else that the world has available to believe right now. Muhammad did not give his life for his followers. Krishna did not give his life for his followers. No one has ever died for those who would come after them. And no one has ever been risen from the grave to lead those who will follow after. This is unique to Christianity. This is is the purpose for verse 1 coming into the world. The advent of Christ culminated in him giving his life as a ransom for many. We know this because we remember what he, what he prayed and what he taught. Just as the last hours were coming. And he was there in the garden. And his disciples were, were asking him, what are we doing here? What's going on? And Christ said, it's, it's my time. The time of fulfillment. My time of glory has come. And in understanding this, he, he explains to them, it is for this purpose that I came into the world. I came to die. I came to give my life a ransom for many. I came to give myself. Who gave himself for us? That's the unique thing about Christianity. Several things to understand about this gift and understand about this action that Christ has taken. And if you don't know these words, if you don't know what they mean, I don't have time to explain each one of them and go through them all extensively. But if you don't know, you need to, you need to find someone and talk with them and find out either one of the other elders or myself in this church or someone that you trust uh, with, with doctrine and theology. Because if you don't know these words, you, you, you cannot be stable in your Christian life. The sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf who gave himself for us was a voluntary sacrifice, a necessary sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, a propitiatory sacrifice, and an efficacious sacrifice. Now all those words, each one would be a sermon. So I'm not going to keep you here for another five hours. Okay? But what we're talking about here is the action on our behalf of Christ and that Christ did not, he, t- he spoke to us and he spoke to us through his word and what he said was, no one takes my life, but I lay it down myself. It's mine to put down and it's mine to take back up. He was not out of control and the world was not winning and Satan was not in the lead here. Okay? All the purpose and plan of God in grace. And the purpose and plan of God in grace was culminated in who gave himself for us. No one took his life. He was voluntarily laid it down. It was also necessary. We went over that before. If you recall, and some of you may not, and I, and I know that, that some of you may not have, ever, have been here uh, to hear any of the things that I've said before. You can be thankful of that later on or you can, can bemoan the, the fact or whatever. But this had to happen. Who gave himself for us had to happen. Why did it have to happen? Why did Christ have to die? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We know that that's what the Bible teaches. Blood had to be shed. Why else? God's eternal purpose was to be fulfilled. And this was from the beginning of time. Ephesians chapter 1. If you haven't been here for any of the stuff that, Mr. that, that, that Elder Roberts has been teaching, go to Ephesians chapter 1 and read the first six verses. 
and see that from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, God had this plan in place. This was not a surprise. This was not a knee-jerk reaction to sin that God took. This was in the plan all along. Was that his son would give himself for us. And it was also necessary, as we said before, because man had a, an inescapable need. And man could not rectify, reconcile, or fix this situation. Now, I'm a guy, and guys like to fix. Okay? If give me a hammer. You know, I want to fix it. I want to put it back in place. I want to get everything right. There was no way that I could get this right. There was no way that humanity could fix this problem. Because, as Ben has said, sin is that pervasive, is that corrosive. Okay? And God is that holy. A holy God, not, not, willing, not willing to tolerate sin, had to do something about it himself because we were impotent to do anything at all about it for ourselves. And we were the ones in need. Christ was not in need. He lived sinlessly, was a person of the Godhead. God was not in need. It was his law that had been violated. He was the one who was violated. We were the ones in need. We were the ones dead. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1, read the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 2, read the next first ten verses. Dead in trespasses, dead in sins. But God, because of His great love for us, His Son gave Himself for us. Christ did that. It was necessary. It was also substitutionary. We can see that from what I've just said also. The substitution, we were the ones who died. We were the ones who deserved this punishment. The wrath of God was not on Christ. The wrath of God was on us. On you and me. And the wrath of God says that I must destroy sin. It must be paid for. That's why the Romans 3.23 wages... Now, I talked, to the, I talked to someone about this the other day, and they were real surprised. And I was real surprised that they were real surprised. Because when you think about it, what is a wage? What's a wage? It's what you earn. It's what you're paid. You're owed that. And the wages of sin is what? Death. You deserve it. You deserve it. We deserve it. I deserve it. I'm pointing at you. I'll, you know, the finger, what's that deal? One points at you and four back at me. I deserve it. I've earned it. I've earned it from the moment I drew a breath. I've earned death. And God looks at us and He says, I will make you alive. I will make you alive as my Son gives Himself for you. So it was substitutionary. We were the ones who deserved it. God poured out His wrath. And that's the next thing, propitiatory. Okay? It generated reconciliation. Now that's a big word. So is propitiatory. Okay? Basically what that means is we were in a situation right here where we could have no relationship with God. And through the action of Christ who gave Himself for us, we now, we now are reconciled, re Consiled, put back with God. Now, that may not hit you, you know, as something remarkable, but think about your week this week. Just your week this week. I'm not going to go back a long way. Just your week this week. Think about your walk. Think about the things that you've thought. Think about the things that you've said. Think about the, the actions that you've taken. Think about the anger that you've, that you've, even anger that you've felt inside and not expressed to others. And realize that each of those things is sin. Each of them is sin. And each of them was paid by the act of who gave himself for us. Because each one of them bought you death. It's what we deserve. It bought us all death. Even the ones we do now. But through the action of Christ in obedience, who gave Himself for us, we're reconciled to God. That's propitiation. It's also that last word was efficacious. 
I like that word. It means it did what it was supposed to do. Efficacious. Here's, here's a definition. Marked by qualities giving the power to produce an intended effect. Producing or capable of producing an intended result or having a striking effect. Now, as I related last week, uh, two weeks ago, not last week, two weeks ago, it, when we were talking about the hope, the hope as we wait for this blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful that it finishes, it follows right behind that with who gave himself for us? Because the hope in Christ is generated by the giving of himself for us so that we're regenerated, reconciled, uh, substituted for, and effectively translated from darkness to light. And all that effect is marked by by a striking change. Striking change. I, I loved the thought last week, and I, I relished in the thought as I was developing this sermon in light of the other sermon that I'd done two weeks ago and the sermon that we'd heard in between there as Steve had talked about chapter 1 of Ephesians in verse 7, that the blood of Christ had reconciled us, had bought us back, had redeemed us, Okay, and as I thought about all that, and it, it, it hit me more and more amazing that at some time in, in eternity down, I as a Christian will shine like a jewel in Christ's crown. And I think, and I, and I look back at my week, and I go, oh, how in the world could that ever be? How could it ever be that I could shine, could spend my days here on earth and then die and go to be a jewel in the crown of Christ? Grace is the only way. The action of Christ on my behalf allows me, enables not me, not enables me, but enables Christ to own me as a jewel in his crown. And I'll shine. That, that's what Hosea chapter 9 says. We will shine in the, in, the, in the crown of Christ for eternity. That's an amazing thing to me. Because I know what a wretch I am. And that God saved a wretch like me. <laughs> amazing grace. For now though, uh, let's also notice that our redemption... Uh, was not accomplished by the exchange of silver or gold. That's outlined, and I, I hope that, that we enjoyed. I, I pray, I pray that we all, that all of us enjoyed what was read at the end of the of of the of the the service last week. You know where that was from. You know where, what what letter Steve was reading. If you want to, turn over to 1 Peter. Some of this will be familiar to you. And in 1 Peter, we'll start uh, in, in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know... That it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in the last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God, not bought, not bought as was common in the slave trade, uh, and we'll see something. I had a wonderful time this morning with Scott uh, as he. I we we like to get together before I before I preach, and I don't, I'm not sure whether the elders do this or not. But but he goes over what he's going to do and what songs we're going to sing and the sequence and things and how that. And this is not a this is not for your for your pleasure or for your show, but this is to to. That, so that we can share that God has us on the same page. And as we shared and talked this morning, God so has us on the same page. 
Because God is revealing in Himself what He's done through the act of, of giving His Son as a ransom and what grace has in effect. What effect grace has in us and, and how low grace actually stooped to redeem us. And we see here that it, it wasn't as is common by slavery. We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm not going to steal any thunder. I'm real close to it. But um, uh, we'll, we'll sing a song that, that has that same connotation. Okay? It has the same history. Not, not with silver or gold that's common by the slave trade, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish. That's what it took to buy us. That's what it took to redeem us. That's what it took to have an effectual annihilation of sin, of the sin that we committed, the ones that earned us death. It took the blood of Christ. Beloved, it is no... I, I, I don't know how to relate this except for to say it is no small thing what God has done. It is no commonplace, ordinary thing what God has done on our behalf. Now we're going to come to the tough parts. Notice that there is a negative and a positive in this passage. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Now listen to me. To redeem us from all wickedness. Every wicked piece, part of your life, He died to redeem you from. No dirty little things are to be left in your life. No little hidden places where you look at God and you say, well, this is not so bad. God can put up with this. God does not wink at sin. In our relation, in sharing this morning, Scott and I, we both, I've read and he's reading through a book called Respectable Sins, written by a gentleman named Jerry Bridges. I showed it to you once before. If you don't have a copy of it, I'm going to try to get the church to buy a bunch of copies of it, okay, and go and get one. Because sin is sin, there is no degree. How many times, how many times have I been asked, well, is this one worse than that one? Well, does this one carry more penalty than that one? The wages of sin. The, singular, wages of one sin is death. That's it. And there is to be, if Christ came and died to redeem us from all wickedness, His redemption covers all wickedness. Alright, this is a glorious thing, but it is also a terrible thing. Because if you're enslaved by a besetting sin this morning, don't waste any more money going to counselors. Don't waste any more time talking to friends and neighbors until you get on your knees before God and, and implore Him and wrestle with Him about what His Word says. Okay? All the time, and, and we deal with, and we talk with, and we get together with, and we share with one another. And these are wonderful things, everyone. Listen, hear me. It's wonderful to be able to share burdens with one another. All right? But the burdens have to be lifted at some point. We have to reconcile sin. We have to, the, the, the wages of sin has been paid. The debt is done. Look at this. Look at this. The note is paid. But sin still remains. And we can't stand and wink at it. It no longer reigns, but it remains. It stays in us. We are still sinful. And God in, in Christ has redeemed us from all wickedness. It covers all of it. Don't, like I said, God has authority. And the authority of His Word says that his, by His atoning death, He has redeemed us from all wickedness. He either breaks, the, this is an old hymn, He either breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free or He doesn't. And if He does, there is no excuse left for our sinful behavior other than the choices we decide to make to deny His power, to disagree with His grace, and to live in willful rebellion. Now, you may not have heard that in a while. You've heard it now. You will not find it in your best life now. You will not find it in the Christian bookstore if you spend two hours looking. Because it's not popular. But it's the truth. 
He redeems from all wickedness. And there is no excuse left. There is no excuse left. Christ died to redeem you. He did not... I love this. I'm going to... The grace of God does not come to make us happy in the pigsty of our sin. It came to take us out of the pigsty. Okay? We are no longer to wallow in sin. We are no longer to walk down those useless roads that all of our friends in the world walk down and follow them down the alleyways of, of, of ignorance and rebellion. They're supposed to come to us and look at us and say, why are you as you are? Why are you different? What has done this to you? And we respond in one word, and that word is grace. It is the grace of God that has transformed us and made us new. It is the grace of God that has taken us and, and, and redeemed us from wickedness. And made us alive in Christ. A wretch, a dead, a useless individual that you and I all were. Useless to God. Described, it's funny, I love the description in, in the book of Titus. Uh, where it talks about uh, the, the, the Cretans. And I think, man, do I identify with that. Listen to this. It's in Titus chapter 1. It's talking about false teachers. And it says, uh, even one of your own prophets has said, Christians are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Now this is the people that T Titus is speaking to. This is the people that Titus is reading this letter to. And he, says, and he says to them, like I'm saying to you, Christ died to redeem you from all of it. Not to wander back into it. Not to... To see if you can stick your foot just a little bit in it and maybe get away with it. Young people, listen to me. The closer you get, the easier it is. I've, I've quoted this thing to you before. I'm going to quote it to you again. It's in the front of my Bible. I'll show it to you just to prove to you that it really is. In the front of my, in the front of my Bible, I'm telling you. Let me see. I say it's in the front of my Bible. This little thing right here. Okay. It's, called, it's a little poem, The Set of the Sails. And it goes like this. One ship drives east and another west with a self-same wind that blows. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that determines the way it goes. Set your sails. You are redeemed from all wickedness. You are purified. You are paid for. You are Bought with a sacrifice, you are not your own. And as Paul describes himself over and over again at the beginning of many of his letters, he is a slave to Christ. We are free. Are we not free? Yes, we are free. It is for, it is for freedom that you have been set free. And, and, and the truth will set you free. And if you know the truth, then you are free. But you are not free to be autonomous. You are free to be enslaved. You are free to be different. You are free to run from sin and temptation and to resist the devil. That's what you're free to do. We're not free to just wallow around and wander through and, and, and try to figure it out and, 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 and make it the best way we can. We have the best way. Walk in a manner worthy. That's the call. That's the description. The reason behind it is that He gave Himself for us. The power to do that is grace. That's what transforms us. That's what makes us no longer dead. So, without an understanding of grace, we're one of those two things that, that I talked about back at the start of all this. Months ago. Months and months ago. We're either... Strugglers who work as hard as we can to keep ourselves saved or to get there. Or we're drifters who wander through either with, 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 a, with, with no concern and no care in indifference or even in rebellion. We must understand that grace is what transforms and it transforms fully. You are made New. And new, let me say this to you, 
New may resemble old, but it cannot look like old. Which one of you would go to a, just popped in my head, automobile sales place, a car sales, whatever, those things, and see a car, and the man says, this one's brand new. And it has a big dent in the side of it. And a big rip down this other side. And there's a big rusty bumper hanging sideways off the back of it. Would you buy that? Not just buy that. Would you believe what this man said? This is brand new. Brand new car. Well, sir, it doesn't look brand new. I know, but trust me. Trust me. It's brand new. No. New does not look like old. And old is was... The new is here. Remember last, last week. If we are in Christ, we are a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. It's not coming. It's here. And it needs to look like it's here. It needs to be evident in your walk, in your life, in your words, in your thoughts, in your relationships. Men with your wives. Young men with your girlfriends. Girlfriends with your boyfriends. Parents with your children, children with your parents, men with men, women with women, the relationships, the actions, the thoughts, the, the way that we think must be different. Because if we're not different in those ways, we're no different at all, and the world can look at us. And how many times, how many times have I heard from people that I work with, well, the church is just so full of hypocrites. The church is just so full of hypocrites. Because they say this, and I watch them do that. Listen, the, the world is watching. The world is watching. You may not see the eyes. You may not know. Had a gentleman in our church uh, share with me. He was getting ready to have a change in, in, his, in, in his work. Uh, not venue, not where he works, but the time frame that he works. He was working nights. He's get, he was getting ready to go days. And he had a gentleman on nights come up to me and say, What am I going to do when you leave? Because you're the influence on me. I don't cuss as much when I'm around you. <laughs> I don't think these certain ways when I'm around you, when you're around. And never, know, never knowing that the, the influence was there. there that, that's that old song. It's a song, it's, I think it was just intended to bring emotion out. But, and it's not maybe wonderfully theologically sound, but it's, it's kind of, it's appropriate for this, I guess this time when the guy talks about going to heaven and all these people coming and telling him, you didn't know what you did, but you helped me. You know, you gave to a missionary or you did this or that. What I'm saying to you is, acts of obedience will be seen by the world. They may not be, rec- they may not be able to recognize who we are being obedient to or why in the world we would ever do it, but they see it. And the effect on you is what they're looking at. Do you live differently than the world? That's the question. All wickedness. That's the negative. Positively, he died to purify us. The word there is a Greek word, Catharizo, it means to clean. It comes from a root word, katharos, which means to clean, purify, or clear. I love this, or to clear of responsibility. I don't like responsibility all that much. And he clears me of responsibility. Now, what responsibility does he clear me of? Does he clear me of responsibility to, to love my wife? Guys, do this. Okay, married guys do this. Little other guys don't do that. Okay, <laughs> ladies, ladies, does he does he clear me? Does he clear wives? Does he clear me from the responsibility of of as Titus chapter two says, being a husband lover? Ladies, uh, okay, good, good. Older women, younger women, slaves, young men. Here, I'm going to get you again. I'm telling you, I'll say this as many times as I get an opportunity to. Self-control. Self-control, young men. What did I say? Self-control. Good. 
Good. Self-control. It's sinking in. It's getting there. Okay. There we go. Self-control. All right? This is what he's given me responsibility for. What responsibility has he alleviated? The responsibility to live under the law and to live in sin. He's annihilated that responsibility because we were responsible to that. Well, don't you know, the, the, I love that question. It's a question Paul asked. Well, don't you know that everyone's a slave to someone? Slavery to sin leads to death. Slavery to God leads to life. And I love the rhetorical question, why not life? Everyone is a slave to someone. We are slaves to sin, born that way, made that way, walking that way. And then God does this wonderful thing who gave himself for us and he purifies us. He alleviates the responsibility. It also means something else too and I love this other thing too. That's that word katharios which means to relieve a responsibility also is the word for innocent. Isn't that awesome? That just blew me away because I'm thinking, again, again, I'm reflecting through the power of His grace, He takes a dead, filthy, worldly creature like we are in ourselves and He transforms us to innocence. He, we are innocent of all transgression. We are innocent. We would stand at the dock and the, I don't have one, but he, the guy would go and call the jury in. And, he'd, and, they'd, and everyone would be seated and they, they would say, what's the first question? Defendant, how do you plea? And knowing that I've sinned, knowing that I'm a wretch, knowing that I was, was worthless to God, I would stand and say, innocent that is remarkable and that's what grace has done through the death of christ is that he's taken wretched worthless people and that's what it's described here uh in in, in titus chapter one in fact both their minds and consciences are corrupted they claim to know god but their actions by their actions they deny him they are detestable disobedient and unfit for anything good and all of us were right there you, you think not look to titus chapter 3 remind people to be subject to, to rulers and authorities ouch <clears throat> to be obedient this is not getting a lot better to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one to be peaceable and considerate. And to show the humil tr true humility toward all men. Here's why. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, left at that, we're pitiful. Verse 4 says, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared... He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Wretched that I am. And, and one thing that says it wonderfully, wonderfully to me, I, I love hymns. My father is, was a minister of music in Baptist churches for 40 some odd years. And there was a song that's, uh, that's it's called O Sacred Head now wounded and the second verse says what thou my lord has suffered was all for sinners gain mine mine was the transgression and thine the deadly pain lo here i fall my savior tis i tis i deserve thy place look on me with thy favor and it's a wonderful old word, vouchsafe. It's one word. Vouchsafe to me thy grace. That's what he's done. And that's what purifies us. We deserve it. He did not. He took it so we didn't have to. And we're purified. 
We're made innocent before God. Not only is that a wonderful Greek word, I love Greek words, but the word, there is a single word that's three words in this passage, his very own. That's a wonderful Greek word. The Greek word is periousios. It is, is, it is wonderful because it is the word used in secular Greek to describe what happened when a king led his armies into victory. And in winning the battle and defeating the foe, there would be great spoils made available to the vanquishing army. And in looking at the spoils of the victory, the king himself really having no great need of anything at all would determine what of these spoils would be taken into his possession to be his very own he would look at it all and say that's mine that's this word the bible teaches that christ looked out before time over all the amazing events that his atoning sacrifice would accomplish and he said and listen let this pierce your heart let me have her let me have him let me have these you these will be my very own the world will know me because of what they see in them people will know that i'm alive because of the lives that they see in these people who are my very own people will know that i can heal and transform and change when they see the transformation in these who are my very own and not only will they my very own have been redeemed from all wickedness and purified and set apart from me but they will be have a characteristic and that's the full circle why did i tell you a story i'm not a storyteller why did i tell you a story about a man who died in 1945 of a brain tumor in china because a characteristic of those who have been redeemed by grace, who have been redeemed from all wickedness, and have been purified, made his very own, where he looked at you and he said, you are mine, is that they will be eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. It's very possible to do what is good out of obligation. I look at my son or my daughter and say, clean your room. I don't want to clean my room. Clean your room anyway, I'm your dad. Okay, we look at one another on occasion on a Sunday morning and we'll say, let's go to church. I don't want to go to church. That's all right. It's the right thing to do. Go to church. Okay, it's very possible to do things out of obligation. But when grace enters the heart of a man or woman, obligation is out the window. Because an eagerness to do what is good is born of of an understanding of God's grace in all its truth and a love for the beauty of Christ. It's no longer, as Steve said last week, and I love it, the, the reason for salvation is not fire insurance anymore. It may start out that way, and it may just keep us out of hell, and that may be why we want to grasp at it, okay? Clinging to the cross, as we say. But why do we keep clinging? We keep clinging because grace transforms our lives. And makes us realize that the debt, not only was the debt paid, but it was paid for a reason. And not just so that you wouldn't burn in hell. I call that an efflux. I like that word too. That's an outpouring of what salvation is, is we don't reside in hell. But why are we saved? For what reason? Does anybody know the answer to the first question of the Shorter Scottish Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're to glorify God, right? I mean, that's what we're saved for. To bring Him glory. That's what His Son took the action of obedience for anyway. In His priestly prayer, in His prayer in the the garden, He starts His prayer with, Father, glorify Yourself. Glorify Yourself. That's what we're there for. That's what the change is supposed to produce. It's, it's, not a change. it's not action out of obligation. When the grace of God gets into the heart of a man, obligation, thoughts of obligation are gone because he's now driven by another source of power. What is that power? 
It is the same power that each of you have received from God if you are in Christ. It is the transforming power of God's grace. It's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And it has taken a stone-hearted, lifeless wretch and made him or her a child of God, eager to do what is good. And so he concludes with, These then are the things you should teach. And Paul's charge to Titus uh, is really no small wonder. And I, for one, will take it to heart because that's what myself and, and the other elders are called to do here. We're to teach the Word. And so I tell you, these, it, the, the instruction here is to in, encourage. And so let me say to those of you who are struggling this morning, if you fall into the, to the group of strugglers who walk in here and hear, and all you hear is, this is what I'm supposed to do, and this is what I'm supposed to do, and this is what I'm supposed to do, and you say, but I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I can't be that. Let me encourage you with one word. Grace. How can we live a life like this? Grace. Let me rebuke, it says rebuke, let me rebuke those of you who are drifters, who are just wandering around. Those of you who are drifting through with either, either indifference or even rebellion. Okay? And my daughter and I talked about the difference between encouragement and rebuke, and there is a definite difference because rebu- rebuke carries a stern warning. And let me give you this as the warning. If you are willing to drift, self-examination is in order. Because God did not call you from death to life, translate you from the kingdom of darkness to, the, to that of His glorious Son, to drift through life. He called you to be set apart, to be His very own, and to be eager to do what is good. And that says, also gives this instruction, says to do it with all authority. And I like this part a whole lot because whose authority? What authority? Is it, do, do, should I, I probably, should I, I should have probably should have brought it. Should I show you each time I get up here the little thing that I got when I was ordained? Is that my authority? I have an ordination paper. Is my authority because I'm standing up here and you're not? And you're down there? Is that my authority? Is my authority because I'm good at this? Obviously not. Is my authority because I have a great personality? Again, obviously not. Is it because I have experience or business acumen and, can, and am a great presenter and can show you a bunch of slideshow things in flash? Again, obviously not. So what's my authority? It sits right here. That's my authority. It's your authority to live in responsibility to the action of grace on your behalf who gave Himself for us to redeem us, to make us lovely, a people eager to do what is good. So, we mustn't grow slack. Titus was not to grow slack. We're not to grow slack. And those who follow us, and this has been of great concern to many of us, and it remains, those who follow us, are not to grow slack. How will they learn not to grow slack? They'll watch us walk. How will our world learn who Jesus is? And this has also been of great concern. It's easy to come in here. It's easy for me. And actually, let me tell you the truth. This is pretty fun. I love to preach. I love to teach. Captive audience. Get to say what I want to with impunity almost, at least with you guys. I don't have impunity to him. But, I, but, you know, I mean, I can say whatever I want to while I'm up here. You may, you can leave if you want or whatever. That's your option. Okay. It's pretty fun. Okay. But I'm not called to have fun. <laughs> it can be enjoyable, but I'm not called to have fun. I'm called to have joy, but not fun necessarily. And if I'm, if I'm walking in here and I'm thinking that this ought to be fun, and if you've walked in here and thinking this ought to be entertaining, 
whether it's on a float your boat or whatever other kind of thing you want to say, what I'm praying is and what I hope is is that every time we walk in here, we feel like we've been sitting on needles. And it hurts. And it changes us. Because it's the transformation is required. It, it requires change. And change is not easy. Change is difficult. And therefore, as I look at the, what he says here, I, I'm, I was taken aback as I, as I looked at the last thing. He says, encourage and rebuke with all authority. My authority is the word. I stand before you in that authority only. And it says, do not let anyone despise you. Now that, how could he do that? How could, he, how, could, how could Titus make sure that no one despised him? Well, he can't. But this book, this letter was not written to be read only by Titus. Titus was to read it before the people whom, whom, to whom he was ministering. As you are mine. As you are ours as elders. The flock that is under our care. At least, the, at least some of you are. Maybe not all of you. But some of you are the flock that's under our care. And so he says, do not let anyone despise you. Now, after some of the railing I've given you guys this morning, how in the world are you not going to despise me? Okay, well it is, again, by grace. I want you, I want you to understand that, that what is spoken to you from here, and what I speak to you now, what others will have spoken to you in the past, and what I pray and, I, and I'm, I'm confident will, have, will be in the future, is for your benefit, for the glory of God. And so as I say again to you, Christ redeemed us from wickedness. He purified us. He made us lovely. And we are to be eager to do what is good. Then I will say the power to do that, the privilege to do that is God's choice in redemption. The power to do that is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave. The desire to do that is the transformation that grace performs. If that transformation is not going on in your life, I beg you, I beg you, search, seek, try yourself. Ask God to try you. Because one thing that, that, is, that is really, really on my heart so much is that, and I've talked to other, some, of the, some of the other leadership here too in the church, is that's so easy. It's so easy for us to come in here on a Sunday. And so easy for us to come in here on a Wednesday when we can all get together and we all know that we think like kind of like the same things and maybe there are little things of doctrine or things of theology that we may not agree completely on, but we're pretty much like-minded and we can all praise God together. But when we walk out there, do we even say a word? Do we even speak a blessing? Do we even look at someone, an unsaved friend, walking in darkness, no hope, no clue, and say to them, as the woman who met Jesus at the well, and I love this because I've been listening to this sermon over and over again all week long too. The woman at the well, it's, it's recorded that, that she met Jesus. She ran back to the town and she said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come and see him. That's all that we have to do. That's all that we have to do is look at our friends and say, I, I, I met a man. You want to meet him? It's not threatening. It's not scary. Not to them. It may scare you to death. Okay? You don't have to have great theology or have gone to seminary or finished a certain class or done Christian witness training or any of that stuff to look at someone that you love and say, I met a man. Would you like to meet him? It's the times between here and the next here that are so critical because that's where you walk. That's where you live. Those are the relationships that you have. Beloved, be eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these people. I thank you that, first of all, for their, for their, for their desire to hear your word. I pray that I've, that I've expressed your word in clarity and uh, in, in, in fullness. But Father, regardless of what I've done, regardless of anything I may have done to the positive or to the negative, effective, ineffective, I am ineffective totally without your Holy Spirit. So Father, bring 
your word to bear on the hearts of your children. Make us, give us an eagerness, an eagerness to, 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 to mortify the flesh, to kill our bodies, to, to die to sin so that we can be alive in Christ. And give us an eagerness, an eagerness to do what is good, not out of obligation, but to do what is good for the glory of God the Father, to the fame of the name of Christ because of the beauty of who you are. Father, I thank you again that you've been here with us. I pray that you, that, that you will, will take anything unhelpful that I've spoken, eliminate it, make us what we are not, give us what we do not have. In your name I pray, amen.